I should like to thank you all for uh, your many prayers and the cards and best wishes that you sent. Uh, I am, I should say, I feel like I'm recovering. Not quite a hundred percent, but uh, Lord willing, uh, in the grace of God, I shall get back there somehow. If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 16? Continue our series in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16, biblical principles for biblical practice, and this morning we want to consider together the sweet comfort of God's sovereignty. We sang so many hymns this morning with so many lines that uh, promote and uh, give examples to us of the sovereignty of God and the purposes of God in His sovereignty. And everywhere you read in Scripture, you read about the sovereignty of God and the purposes of God as being absolutely sovereign and above all. And what I really want to know for myself, since the Bible speaks like that, is of what benefit, of what value is the sovereignty of God for my life, for me as a believer. So we'll read verses 1 through 9 of Proverbs chapter 16. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an, in, is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And we'll just read thus far. May God bless to us the reading of his precious word. Now let's pray together. Now our sovereign God, who controls all things, we bow before you. Here is your word. We desire, Father, that by your spirit you would speak to us from your word, through your word. We thank you for your Son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts and minds this morning be filled with, with glorious, powerful truths about Him. As we consider this immense subject, the subject of your sovereignty. May this great subject be a comfort to each one of us in whatever place or situation we find ourselves in this morning. These things we pray and these things we ask all in the name that is far above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The Bible is a simple book with a simple message. You read about that message when you uh, begin in Genesis and you work your way through Revelation. You just can't miss the message. It is a message about redemption, isn't it? That is the story, that is the thread that pervades all of the pages of the Bible. That God is estranged from man and man is estranged from God and man can do nothing to bring about that recovery process. It will take a sovereign God with sovereign purposes to work that and to accomplish that. And so from, from Genesis in the beginning to the end in Revelation we read about redemption. We read about this glorious recovery that God has orchestrated, that God has uh, begun. We read about a plan, we read about a purpose. And that purpose is to recover, is to ransom, is to redeem us. Redemption because of our estrangement from God. And redemption, of course, saturated by 
the fact that God loves us. We can never get away from that in redemption, right? That's the whole story behind the redeeming activity and work of Christ. That Jesus loves His people. That Jesus died for His people to save them, to redeem them, to bring them to Himself. So that this entire Bible is infused with the activity of God towards that end. The recovery of a people who have walked away from God by their sinfulness, who have abandoned God, and yet God has not abandoned them. And so this is the beauty of the sovereignty of God. When we talk about things like sovereignty, or when we talk about things like redemption, we need to understand that when God is involved in those things, and He's always involved in those things, it's because He is engaged in relationship. Covenant relationship. A relationship that is in eternity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that issues in a covenant of redemption, an eternal covenant. That in time works out that covenant of redemption through all the covenants of Scripture, saturating them with this whole principle of relationship. I will be their God, and they shall be what? My people. That's relationship, isn't it? That's the story of redemption. That's the story of the Bible. It's about broken relationships that are made right. It's about estrangement and reconciliation. And the only way any of that can take place is if God is sovereign. If God is not sovereign, why are we even here this morning? Why would we even come if God is not on a throne ruling over every single thing, over every facet of your life? And so the sovereignty of God is this magnificent and glorious picture that we discover when we read the Bible. Why should we believe the Bible? Because the Bible is a revelation from God that is authoritative. Because its authority is not grounded in me or in a prophet or in a priest. The authority of Scripture is grounded in the character of God. That's why you can trust the Word of God. That's why you can believe what God says in His Bible, in His Word. Because it is because of the authority of God. That God has revealed Himself. What is it that I discover in my Bible about God? Well, I discover what He's like. And right alongside discovering what He's like, I discover what I'm like. And you are not very different from me. And I'm not very different from you. But God is completely different to all of us. And so we find our common ground in who we are. We're created in the image of God. We find our common ground in the fact that everyone has sinned, all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And then we find that God has stepped forward and done something to bring about a recovery of that, to establish a relationship that He's bound Himself to in the person of His Son by giving His Son to the cross. So... When you read the Proverbs, you might say to yourself, well, how do the Proverbs ever speak about such things? Because the Proverbs, you know, are so practical, aren't they? I mean, the one thing we can say about the Proverbs, it's all about wisdom, wisdom for life, godly wisdom, not human wisdom, the, the principles of this world, the philosophy that's all around us, but the wisdom that only comes from God who is above, pure, undefiled, heavenly wisdom. And so, the Proverbs, which are suffused with this, this idea of wisdom, are given so that I, you and me, as a Christian, can live a life that pleases God. So, so many times, in fact, even in this passage, you read about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting point. If you don't fear God, you're a foolish person. That's what the Bible insinuates and teaches. So, the Proverbs, which are so practical, yet are designed to raise us up into a comprehension or an understanding of who God is and what God is like, so that I might know who I am. That's why Calvin was right 
when he began his institutes in that remarkable way that the sum of all saving knowledge, of all wisdom, is that we might know God and know ourselves. And you only know yourself when you really begin to understand God. This is what the Proverbs can do for us in a multitude of verses, in a multitude of ways. One of the great dangers facing the, the Christian church, the evangelical church at this time, is this, this reduction of God to our level. This reducing of God in who He is and what He can do and what He's able to do when you have all kinds of philosophies like open theism that God does not know the future and all things in the future. That He only discovers things as, as the future unfolds and then He has to make changes to that future that he sees. I mean, what kind of folly is that? That's certainly not the teaching of Scripture, is it? That's not the teaching of the Bible. One thing I know about the Bible is you cannot reduce God. Israel tried it in the wilderness. Israel tried it through their tragic long history in the Old Testament, breaking covenant after covenant with God. You can't reduce God. You cannot overthrow God. Why? Because God is sovereign. That's why. That's why we can't play with God. You know, the thing about God is God does not have a derived authority. God does not have an inherited authority. I mean, King Charles III, new king, right? He only has a derived authority. It's given to him. It's granted to him. But nobody gave authority to God. Nobody said to God, you... You need to have this authority. But that's what the Christian church is trying to do all the time. We give authority to God instead of recognizing that God has authority. And that He speaks to us. And has spoken to us. The Bible teaches emphatically that God is omniscient. What do we mean by that? He knows everything. The Bible teaches emphatically that God is omnipresent. What do we mean by that? God is everywhere present. The Bible teaches that God is omnipotent. What do we mean? He's all-powerful. Absolutely powerful. In other words, in the omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence of God, there is no comparison to God. Not from you, not from any king on this earth. No comparison. Why? God is sovereign. And God only and alone is sovereign. Now, you know, when we talk about omniscience or omnipotence or omnipresence, we recognize that those are attributes of God, what we call attributes of God. But they are incommunicable attributes. God cannot communicate those to you or to me. He can't give those to you. We don't possess those. We can be holy. We can be loving. Because those are communicable attributes of God. But those three in particular, the omniscience and the omnipotence and the omnipresence of God, are incommunicable. And why is that? Because they are the attributes that declare that God is absolute in all those areas. In other words, God is sovereign. Or, as the Bible says, as the Bible describes, God is exactly who God says He is. I'm not making up a characterization of God. You know, if you write a, a story or a novel or something like that, because it's fiction, you make it up. And you give vested interests to your characters, whoever they might be. But you do not give, and I do not give, vested interest to God. God is vested Himself and within Himself with this character that is absolutely divine, absolutely ineffably pure. God is so pure, you cannot even approach Him. He says to Moses, nobody can see my face and live. Nobody. God is this, this infinite, eternal being. And I look at us, and look, we look at ourselves, and what are we? We are finite beings. In fact, our days are numbered. That's why Moses says, prays, Lord, teach us. To number our days. Give us a heart of wisdom that we may know you. Because we're nothing apart from you. You 
are sovereign. So we recognize when we read our Bibles that there is this immense difference, this immense distinction between who we are and who God is. And we must recognize that. Thank God that the reformers recognized that distinction. That they saw God as apart from themselves. They saw God as far off and eternal and yet imminent, near, close at hand. God says, if you look for me, if you seek me, you will what? Find me. Isn't that an amazing thing? If you search for God and seek for God, God says you will find me. How do you find a sovereign, eternal, omnipotent God? So yes, you must recognize that there's a distinction and a difference between who you are and who God is. And I think that's exactly what Proverbs 16 gives to us when we come to this text. What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? It's a good question, right? You might find people have a variety of answers. What do we mean? What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? We mean, quite simply, that the God of the Bible is the absolute Lord or ruler of everything, including yourself. That even the blades of grass out there, when they blow this way and blow that way, it's because God is sovereign. Even when the little bird lands on the tree with a twig in its mouth to build its nest, it's because God is sovereign. Even when the little ant comes up out of the earth who's filled with wisdom, who goes about his labor unerringly and does all of his things, it's because God is sovereign, right? That's why he does it. So that I can look at creation and be staggered by the complexity and the beauty of it. Because that's where I see God. He's revealed himself. It's a general revelation, isn't it? But here, here is a special revelation, a divine revelation from God. God has finally spoken to us, as the writer to the Hebrew says, in these last days, in the person of his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the worlds. He is the image, the exact representation of God. And he has made purification for our sins. And having done that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So to which of the angels did God ever say, you're like me? None. None. Because the names that Jesus bears and have are superior to every name that an angel can ever announce to the world. You see, God is a part. Here we are. And God is beyond us and above us. And we recognize it because the Bible says it. He's the supreme Lord. I love what Mr. Spurgeon says. He says, there is nothing for which we as believers, nothing for which we as believers ought to contend for more earnestly than the dominion of Jesus over every creature. Nothing that we should more earnestly contend for than the kingship of God over all of his works. Nothing that we should contend for more earnestly than that the throne of God and God's right only is to sit on that throne. Oh, how we miss that in the Christian church. That kind of thinking. Because I'm so wrapped up with my life, with all of its trials and tribulations and sorrows and afflictions and troubles. I'm so wrapped up with my broken relationships, with the troubles of them. I'm so broken or affected by my work relationships, it doesn't seem to go right. I'm so troubled by everything. God just kind of recedes in the background. When God says, bring me to all of that, and I'll show you my purpose, and you'll bring glory to me. I mean, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him for how long? Forever. Right? Why do you want to glorify God? Because God is to be glorified. Because God is sovereign. Now, you know the interesting thing about the world or the unbelieving world, the wicked, the unrighteous, is they will allow God everywhere except on His throne. They will take God wherever you give Him as long as He's not on the throne. As long as He's not what that means. That God is absolutely sovereign. 
They'll take your God, but they'll never take the God of Scripture who is sovereign above all. So the Bible declares God as sovereign. I mean, just look at the names of God, right? El Shaddai, Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai, all of the names of God. They just show God what he's like. Well, what about his attributes? They all show his sovereignty, all of his sovereignty. That's why this doctrine, because if it reveals God like that to us in the Bible, that's why this doctrine should be a comfort to us. That God controls all things and that God wills all things. Now, you know, for those people who don't like the sovereignty of God, then the question we must ask is, well, how do you explain the whole thing about evil or sin or wickedness? Or, perhaps to get a little bit closer to the bone, how do you explain the evil done to Jesus with the approval of God? Good question, right? How do you explain the evil of man done to Jesus and God standing by and approving it? That's the cross. There's only one answer to that. God is over it all. He has a purpose, and He has an end, and it's beyond us. You know, we always talk about the means and the end of a thing, right? So in order to achieve the end of anything, I employ the means, the use of means. God is exactly the same. In order to achieve His end, that He get all the glory, He employs the means to achieving the end. And we must never think that the means are the real thing. That's what we get hung up on. That's the questions we always have. Well, what about this and what about that? We're always questioning the, the means, but never the end, because we know from the Bible what the end is. But our trouble is with all the little means. How do you explain them? Why does God do what He does? Answer? For His glory. That's all. Don't even bother trying to question that. Because the Bible doesn't question it, it just states it. So I want to show you the sovereignty of God in action here in Proverbs. So so take verse 4, right? Look at 16, verse 4. Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, I want you to notice three things straight off, right? Number one, God has made everything. That's what the verse says. The Lord has made everything. So God has made everything. What does that mean? He's, He's the creator, right? Not only that, but secondly, everything has a purpose. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. He's the controller So, the Lord is the creator, the Lord is the controller, and thirdly, God even has a day of judgment for the wicked. He is ultimately the conqueror. Creator, controller, conqueror. Or to put it another way, He's just sovereign. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. So now, Because you're good theologians, you need to ask questions of that, of that verse. So here's the first question. How many things has God made? That's an easy answer, right? Everything. How many things has God made? He has made all things. He's made everything. That's the first question. Second question is, do all those things control themselves? No. No, they don't control themselves because they have a derived purpose from God. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Notice that the purpose for, of all created things is given by God. You didn't come up with a purpose for your life. God has a purpose for your life. No, God controls the purpose the end for which he made everything, as Mr. Edwards would tell us. Third question. Can any of us avoid 
God's purpose. Can you avoid the purposes of God? Again, we must say no, because notice in the text, verse 4, even the wicked, even the wicked have a day of trouble, a day of judgment. So even the wicked who do their own thing, they fulfill the end that God has for them by their own condemnation. Now look at verse 5. You see verse 5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. There it is. There's the wicked. That's the end of the wicked, right? The end of the wicked is this day of trouble. So can anybody avoid God's intended purpose? No. Nobody can. What does that mean? That means that nothing occurs apart from God. Didn't Jesus say that all the hairs on your head are numbered? Now, you know, I'm losing some hair. You might not know it, but I am. But I do know one thing. All the ones on top and all the ones lost are numbered. Every one of them. Thank God I've got some in reserve, right? God has numbered the hairs of your head. Or take, for example, you walk outside your house and there's a little bird just hopping around looking for food, worms. Not one of them, not one of those little birds falls to the ground in death apart from God knowing. And Jesus put it this way, apart from your heavenly Father who cares If he cares for the birds of the field, of how much more value are we than a sparrow? Now, you know the interesting thing about God? He doesn't stand far off. You know, sometimes when you put things in motion, you have to stand back and let them run their course. That's not God. God does not stand far off and say, okay, get on with the business of unfolding yourself, the plan or the purpose. No, God God doesn't just let things take their course, be it may, whatever they decide. No, God has a purpose. Now look at verse 33 of this chapter, chapter 16, right? It says that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. What does that mean practically? It means if you go to Las Vegas and you roll the dice or hope the cards are going to turn up a particular way, whatever way the dice roll or the cards turn up is ordained by God. You can cast the lot, but it's every decision is from God. Now, you know, some people think they're smart. I mean, and you see people who play poker, right? They, they, they kind of have figured out what the opponent has. Not always right, right? Because we're finite. And there they are trying to determine what the next card might be. You know, God knows every position of every card and every deck of cards around the world. And every time you shuffle them, God knows how you shuffle them. He knows where everything is. Whatever it lands on, whatever turns up, it's every decision. It's not from you, the shuffler, but from God. Isn't that sovereignty? That's exactly what that is, right? Not just known by God because God knows all things. No, determined by God. Decreed by God. It's every decision is from the Lord. What does that mean? Thank God for this verse. Because what that means is that all the mundane affairs of life are under the sovereign purposes of God. Not just the wicked for the day of judgment, but your life, my life. Not even, not even our lives, but our games. You see, here's a word that speaks to that which is final, even the wicked for the day of judgment. 
or the lot is cast, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This is a verse that speaks to that which is final, but it's also a word that speaks to that which is frivolous. You play your games. God's sovereign. And everything else in between, that which is final and that which is frivolous, under the hands of God. All spiritual matters, your spiritual life, your devotional life, your, your struggles to pray, all of those spiritual things that you're struggling with. Who am I? What's my purpose in life? Where am I going? What's, what's God trying to say to me? All of those things in the hands of God. And all the physical matters like, well, what job should I do? Or shall I stay in my job? Or who shall I marry? And why should I marry that person? And all of those kinds of questions. All the physical matters in the purposes of God. Isn't it better to live your life with that knowledge than to just try and live by your own strength or your own power or your, even your own knowledge? I often ask myself, you know, I know God's sovereign. I believe God's sovereign. What does that look like? I mean, how does God do that? How does He do sovereignty? Right? One thing you could say about God is that He's the great surveyor of all things. Not from a distance, like some deistical, mechanized view of the universe just runs its course. No, but right up front. Who has ordained the stars, as we sang, in their courses above who has determined your breath and how many days you shall actually live. So not from a distance, but right up close. So look at chapter 15. I mean, just go back one chapter and look at verse 3. Chapter 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good. Ah, what a comfort to, to know that. It's not just on the good. Ah, it's on the evil as well. And notice that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Everywhere. And what's he doing? What are those eyes doing in every place? Keeping watch on the evil and the good. Now what does that mean? It means God surveys all outward conduct. Everything that happens out there, the good, the evil, God surveys it, right? He keeps his eyes on it, right? Then look at verse, uh, verse 11 of chapter 15. Well, what a verse this is, right? Chapter 15, verse 11, Sheol and Abaddon, the grave and what comes after, lie open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of the children of man. Now listen, if God can see in the grave, which is closed, right? I mean, isn't that what we do? Go to every cemetery in Sarasota and look out there. You don't see open graves. None. They're closed up. Bodies are under the soil. If God can see in the, in the grave, Sheol, and if he can see even in hell itself, Abaddon, if God can do that, then I want to tell you this morning, every aspect of your heart is open to Him like the sun shining on it in its power. Every hidden crevice of your heart, every little sin that you've tucked away in the secret place so that nobody knows but you alone, God says, I see it. I see it. Not even the grave can hide from me. Not even hell itself can hide from me. So God not only surveys that which is outward, but God surveys everything which is inward. Your conduct, your motivation, whatever you think about. When God exercises surveillance like that, it's sovereign surveillance. Now you know we live in a world of surveillance, right? Gee, I mean, you can't get away with anything today. Because somebody has a cell phone and records, surveys, 
I mean, you see those cell phones, they're upright. Any, any trouble, somebody's there, and they're all recording for it. And sure enough, you could use that recording to put someone in jail or whatever it was, to prove your point. We live in the world of constant surveillance. But we do like to hide things from other people in our hearts and minds. And you know, no cell phone can survey my mind or my heart. But God can, and he does. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Even the grave is open to me, he says. You cannot hide anything then from the sovereignty of God. But you know the thing about God is that he not only exhibits sovereignty, right? Not only demonstrates it or shows it, so that he can declare who he is. But he does it so that you and I can learn from him. So look at verse 9 of chapter 16. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now you know the one thing I've discovered, particularly more so now in these days in which we live, is that everybody's seeking direction. Everybody's looking for some purpose. Which way am I? should I go? There are only two ways. There's my way and God's way. Those are the only two ways. Our ways or God's ways. I can either walk with God in His ways or against God and His ways. I mean, Proverbs 20, verse 24 says this, A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? I take a lot of steps in the daytime, I suppose. I mean, some people have watches that measure their steps, right? Oh, I got my 10,000 steps in today, whatever it is. The Lord gives you those steps. A man's steps, a man's ways, a man's direction, a man's goals, a man's purpose, they're from the Lord, ultimately. Can you understand that? I can't. There's a depth to the sovereignty of God, isn't there? If you could grasp the sovereignty of God, God wouldn't be sovereign. That's the whole thing about the sovereignty of God. It's designed to make me worship Him. It's designed to elevate God in my mind, in my thinking, that He's beyond me so that I can actually commit myself to Him because He knows everything. I'm prepared to let you in on a few secrets in my life. But I'm not prepared to let you in on all the secrets of my life. Oh no. But you know what? God knows them. Every one of them. That's why I need the cross. Take care of those baggage items of sin that ruin us, that have ruined us, that have killed us. Because sin kills. Sin is not a mistake. There are many preachers today who just, sin is a mistake, you know. No, sin is not a mistake. It's violence done to God. It's lawlessness, as the Bible says. So, God provides direction and exercises His sovereignty in opening ways for me in which to live and demonstrate my life or live my life. How can, I, how can I know that? Well, look at verse 3 of chapter 16. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be what? Established. You want to know what God's will for your life is? Well, you, you, shall I do this? Shall I do that? Well, commit them to the Lord. Commit your plans. Your work. What happens if I'm afraid? Fearful. A fearful kind of person. Or what happens if I'm an anxious kind of person afraid well God's sovereignty is there to protect you to help you when you feel fearful what an immense comfort that is right that's why the proverb says 18 verse 10 the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it you know that little Preposition into is very important in Hebrew. It's not just like I'm running maybe towards. 
No, I'm, I'm being suffused and taken over by that tower, that strong tower who is God himself. I'm in there. I'm safe from all harm. Even the mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings for safety. How much more safe are you if God does that? Gathers you in, right? You see, safety is to be found only in the Lord. I mean, our society is all about being safe, right? You, you need a weapon. You need security. You need a camera system. You need an alarm system to protect you. Those things will never protect you in the end. No. Those are just physical means. My physical safety is entirely in the hands of God, and not only that, but my spiritual safety is totally secure in the hands of God. You know, in the year 1680, which is 400 years ago, right? In the year 1680, there was this persecution of the Scottish Covenanters. You've heard of the Scottish Covenanters, right? Strong Calvinistic Scotsmen who believed in the sovereign purposes of God. And those Scottish Covenanters were being persecuted by their, for their faith. One of them was Richard Cameron. And Richard Cameron suffered martyrdom. And then his persecutors, they did a very cruel thing. They cut off his head and they sent it to his father who was also Alan Cameron in prison for his faith. So they killed his son, cut off his head and sent it to his father. And in his grief, Alan Cameron looked at the remains, the earthly, grisly remains of his son and this is what he said. He says, I know them. They are my sons, my own dear sons. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot and will not wrong me nor mine. But he has made goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. Huh. That's sovereign safety, right? That's being secure in the sovereign purposes of God. Oh dear brothers and sisters, tell me, tell me how to live that life. Show me how to live that life. Because if you can and you do, I want to be like you. I want to be like that. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul said, right, in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know Jesus. And I want to know the power of His resurrection. And I want, to, I want to bear and share in His sufferings. I want to become like Him in His death. Whew. Right? I want to become like Jesus in His death. Why, Paul, would you ever think like that? You know what his answer was? Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. That's why I want to be like that. Because Jesus made me His. That's a man who understands sovereignty. Totally. Now you know God may, or God may not do, verse 7 for example, look at verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. If our enemies are at war with us, if you find yourself at work and you are persecuted for your faith, or whenever you try to share the gospel and you are scoffed and mocked, then just remember these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when all men may speak evil of you or against you. Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life, Jesus says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that leads to the next question that Jesus makes. What will it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? What will it profit you? Nothing. Are you in the process of losing your own soul? 
offered. If you gain everything, but lose Jesus. So you see, there's a great lesson here for us. You make your plans, I make my plans. We make our plans, we have our plans. We mark them out, we, we have direction, we have goals, we have all of these, but let me tell you this, not one of them is apart from or outside the sovereign purpose of God. Not one plan. Even sin is worked in this incredible God's purpose. Because otherwise you'd have to say, well, Adam and Eve caught him by surprise. And they never caught God by surprise. He knew it. He planned it. He purposed it. Because the greater picture is not sin to win, but redemption. Right? That's the purpose of God. How can, he, how can God demonstrate redemption? Well, you have to have something to redeem. You have to have those who cannot redeem themselves because that's how far they have fallen and sinned and gone away from God. So you need a plan and a purpose that will win them to himself. And only God can come up with that plan. Did you know that in the day of your moral death, that day was a spiritual birthday? When you died to all your deeds of, I'm a good person. I'm a righteous person. I'm not a bad person. No, that's your morality. When that dies, then you are born again. Or as we say, born Reborn or newborn, as I like. But you know, dear brothers and sisters, everything that I've been saying to you is not the main thing. As important and wonderful as those things are that we've talked about, it's not the main thing. What is the main thing? The main thing is, what does God's sovereignty mean to God himself? What does the sovereignty of God mean to God? That's the question. Now, I, I acknowledge, when I thought about that, Russ, that's an awkward question. Or maybe it's even a foolish question, right? Why is God sovereign? Why is God sovereign? Well, he cannot be otherwise, right? I mean, we've determined that already. Perhaps the question should be this. Is God's sovereignty even necessary? Is God as a sovereign being even necessary? Does he have to have absolute power? Does he have to control all things? I thought about that and I thought, that's another weak question, Russ. It's a weak question. Because if God is not absolutely sovereign, then nothing matters. Not your life, not anybody else's life. And if God is not sovereign, frankly, your salvation is not safe. If God is not sovereign, your salvation is in your hands. How secure is that? When you're just dust and dirt and rubbish. Not safe at all, right? You see, if God is not sovereign, then all these declarations in the Bible are not true. Right? If God is not sovereign, everything the Bible says about him is not true. And if that's right, then not God is not God. That's what you're left with. If you wish to deny or play or diminish the sovereignty of God, then you reduce God and therefore God is not God as God shows himself, reveals himself, says that he is. In fact, if God is not sovereign, life would cease to be as we know it right now. He holds the universe, the writer to the Hebrews says, by the word of his power. He just speaks the Lord Jesus Christ and it maintains. So I want to give you some benefits of the sovereignty of God. I mean, what, what do they mean for me, right? So number one, think about this. God is able to perform whatever he wills, but never contrary to his nature. God cannot go against his nature. Right? Cannot do that. So therefore, in whatever God has revealed and shown of himself and his nature and his character, I can be confident in God. Number two, God can do all things. He can do everything without labor. He does it most easily, effortlessly, right? Therefore, I can be confident in his strength. It's absolute 
Number three, God can do everything either using the means necessary or without the means necessary or even contrary to the means. God can do that as it pleases him. Therefore, I can know that there is nothing outside of the control of God, including my life and my work. Because work gives you purpose and direction. To be workless, you could say you are worthless. No, we need work, right? We need purpose. We need direction. doesn't matter if you're a mother at home with her children. It's work. In fact, that may be the hardest work of all because I've seen it with my own eyes and my own family, my own life. That's the hardest job, a mom and her children. How does a mother make it through each day with a child or children that are willful, directionless, self-willed, self-governed, lying, deceptive, all the time. How does a mother work through that? God. You need God, right? So nothing is outside of God's control. That's why the psalmist says, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Commit your way, your plan, your purpose to the Lord. He will direct your path. Number four, there is no power anywhere that can resist God or defeat God. Therefore, I am safe in this world and the next. No power can defeat God. I'm safe for eternity. Number five, we can only do what we do by the willing determination and power of God. Therefore, I should cease and you should cease trusting yourself and your plans. Don't take matters into your own hands. Isn't that why the Apostle Paul wrote those remarkable words, first of all in Philippians chapter 1? Work out your own salvation, or it is God who is working in you. It's God who is at work, both to will and to work for his good purpose. Work your salvation out with fear and trembling, Philippians 2. Work, and God will work, and does work. Number six, God's sovereignty should be the greatest motivator to praise, to giving thanks to God, because I'm not in charge and you're not in charge. Thank God I'm not in charge and you're not in charge. In other words, you are in God's hands and God can never compromise himself. It is useless, if not blasphemous, To ask questions like this, can God make a stone that is too heavy for him to move it? I've asked myself that question, but it borders on the sacrilegious, on that which is blasphemous. Because God's divine power can never be manipulated and never be destroyed. Think of Jesus on the cross. Isn't the gospel the declaration, the manifestation of Jesus as the power and wisdom of God. And where do you see that? The cross. Shame. Death. Jesus becoming sin for us. That's the will of God. That's the purpose of God. Jesus dying on the cross. That's God giving his stamp of approval to the abuse heaped upon his son by wicked hands. Saying, yep, that's my purpose for you, my son. To save me, to save you. God's plan. You see, Jesus must die according to the purpose of God so that I can live, that I can really have life. Unless Jesus dies for me, I perish, right? And God, by the way, is not a manipulator. You know, a manipulator has to keep working events to their own ends. God doesn't manipulate anything. He's the mastermind from eternity to eternity and everything in between perfectly orchestrated by his hand. So those are some of the benefits. But what about your response to those benefits? This This is where it gets a little rough maybe. Number one. 
This is a call, the sovereignty of God, to personal repentance. That's where you have to begin. Lord, I've tried to do my own thing. I've tried to establish my own purpose, my own goals. I've come up with my own ideas. And I've even, I've even dabbled in sin. No, God says you cannot win or avail anything if you choose that. It's a call to personal repentance. Number two, it is a call to trust the promises of God. B.B. Warfield said that one of the great tragedies of a Christian's life is to despair of God. To be filled with despair that you cannot trust God. In fact, that is an insult to God. Because the very thing that God is by His nature is that you can trust me. You can trust me with my words, God says. Not only with my character and my nature and my being, but with my words, what I promise you. If I say that I will forgive your sins and remember them no more, do you believe me? That's what God says. Do you believe me when I say that about you? That I'll forgive you? That I love you? Do we believe that? Or do we, because we're good reformed folk, oh, well, you know, there are, there are theological reasons why we don't want to go too what utter rubbish. You either believe God loves you or you don't. You either believe that God has forgiven you and does forgive you because He loves you and because the price is being paid or you don't. It's no middle ground. Have you despaired of God? It's a call to trust His promises. Not only that, but it is a call to live a life of reverence. I mean, the fear of the Lord is all through Proverbs, right? This is a call to live in reverence before God, to worship Him. We worship Him because this is what He's like, sovereign. This is a call, number four, to praise Him, to just respond, thank you, God, that that's what you're like, my God. Thank you. This is a call to serve Him. Because you see, being a Christian, you're not in a vacuum or living on an island by yourself. You're called to have fellowship, like we are this morning. We're called to interact with each other primarily, first of all, before we even get out there in the world and live our lives. This is where we have fellowship with one another, communion with each other because of Jesus. A call to serve Him faithfully. It is a call to submit to Him all my sorrows and all my shame. It is a call to believe in prayer. When you pray, do you actually believe that God not only hears you, but will do what you pray for? Believe in prayer. And finally, this is a call to hope that He, this sovereign God, will save your loved ones even as He saved you. That's big, isn't it? This is a call to hope in God, to trust in God, to believe that God who saved you, not worth saving, can save your family and your children and your loved ones. So it is for all of those reasons, right, that we must confess and that we must believe in the sovereignty of God and love the sovereignty of God so that I can give Today, tomorrow, tonight, every day, my day to Jesus Christ, my work to Jesus Christ, my family, my wife, my husband, my children, my grandchildren, I can give everything to Christ. Because He's in charge, He's sovereign, and He holds everything in His hands. What a doctrine to give you comfort in this uncertain, fragile topsy-turvy world. This is the God we need and must believe. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Your Word is so powerful, so direct to us. Help us to believe it. Help us to trust what You say. Thank You for Your sovereign purposes and for Your sovereignty that You know all things, control all things, have ordained all things, the beginning from the end, and it was the Lord Jesus who said that He is the Alpha and the Omega, the, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He holds the keys to life, death, hell, and all other things. Fear not, 
Jesus said, I am the living one. I died and I am alive forevermore. Oh, Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your purpose of redemption. Thank you for your salvation. Forgive us our failure to trust you more. Help us to trust you more. So now do a great work in us to lift up our hearts and minds to love you and to filled with joy because of these truths that we've talked about this morning. Work by your Spirit, we pray. And make us to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, to be conformed to his image, to be found in fashion like him, to be like him in his death, to share in his sufferings, to know him. We ask all of these things then with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you take